This week on Science for the People, we're saying goodbye to 2017 in style. We'll be speaking with writers from Science News Magazine about five of the top science stories of the year. Time to hear about gravitational waves, giant iceberg splits, tiny gene edits, and more. Get excited! Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Now, should old science findings be forgot and never brought to mind? It's almost the end of the year, and it's time to take a look back. Life comes at you fast, and in the days of daily news, it's easy to forget stuff that happened only a few months ago. So this week, we're looking back on five of the biggest findings of the year. These aren't in any order of importance. We don't want to say one kind of science is more important than another. But this first one is admittedly pretty stellar, as it were. In 2017, scientists detected two neutron stars whacking into each other, and the results are teaching us a lot about the universe. Here to tell us about it is Emily Conover, the physics writer at Science News Magazine. Emily, thank you for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me. Now, for those of us like me that know basically nothing about space, what is a neutron star? Uh, right. So a neutron star is uh, like this super, super dense, um, small remains of what was once a large, full-fledged star. So what happens is you've got this you know, star that's burning through, uh, it's fusing heavier and heavier elements, and then it runs out of fuel that it can fuse, and its core collapses, it explodes in a supernova, and what's left is um, either a neutron star or a black hole. And so if you don't collapse into a black hole, you get this really, really dense thing that's about the size of a city and um, really uh, weird stuff inside there that we don't understand too well. And what happens when two neutron stars run into each other? Uh, so... They, uh, the, the two stars start out kind of like orbiting each other. They get closer and closer, circling in on one another. Um, and they kind of, de when they get close, they start deforming each other and then they merge into one. Um, and then the two of them, uh, collapse into either a black hole or they might make sort of a supermassive neutron star for a little while that then collapses later into a black hole. Um, and then you get, you know, kinds of crazy fireworks come out of that, like light, um, gravitational waves, um, matter spurts out. Um, and this is all really exciting stuff because we'd never actually seen one of these things happen before. Um, so now we're learning about what happens when they run into each other. So how often does this happen? Um, so uh, we don't actually know um, for sure, uh, but they are very, very rare. So you wouldn't expect one to happen, you know, anytime soon uh, in our galaxy, for example. Uh, but that's one of the things we're going to learn as we um, find more of these is exactly how often they happen. And these neutron stars, when they collided, we observed a pair of them smacking into each other in 2017, and they gave off gravitational waves. So just to review for the class, what are gravitational waves? Gravitational waves, uh, they are predicted by Einstein's theory of gravity, the general theory of relativity. Um, so in that theory... Uh, gravity is the result of mass warping space-time. So if you imagine space-time is this sheet, uh, you know, if you put a heavy ball in the middle of a sheet, you can bend that sheet. And then if you 
you know, roll a ball down that sheet, it'll be bent. It'll be, its trajectory will be bent by the warping of that sheet. Um, and so that's kind of how, how we think of uh, what's happening in space. You know, Earth, for example, is warping space and that's creating, you know, that's causing the moon to orbit around it, right? It's changed the trajectory of, of uh, other objects. So um, gravitational waves are simply like if you imagine taking that sheet and then shaking it and creating ripples that then travel across this sheet of space time. That's what uh, gravitational waves are effectively. And they wobble things, right? They they like they, they shift yeah, they, your protons around. Yeah, they what they do is they stretch and then they squeeze alternately between, um, you know, the the space itself, right? So which causes everything within space to kind of squeeze and stretch and squeeze and stretch, and that's how we actually detect gravitational waves um, with these super long arm detectors that have like four kilometer arms. And then we detect those arms stretching and squeezing by like a tiny fraction of the size of a proton. I will say that knowing that gravitational waves are probably going through me all the time, mildly stretching and squeezing my protons gives me the crawling heebie-jeebies. I found out about it on this <laughs> podcast, actually, about a year ago, and it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> well, luckily, they're really, really weak, so we can't feel them. It doesn't matter. I feel them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have detected gravitational waves before. It was actually one of the hottest findings of 2016. What makes this 2017 neutron star crash so special? The previous detections were all of black holes colliding, um, which was really cool, of course. Um, but this is different because instead of just black holes, we now have stuff, matter, right, that's colliding. So you, when the two neutron stars collide... Not only do they create gravitational waves, they also um, have light that comes out. And you can detect both of these signals at once, which which we did. Um, and that allows you to learn a lot more than you can from when black holes collide. They don't produce anything else because they're black. Um, so that's sort of something that people have been waiting for for a long time to, to be able to detect um, these, you know, light and gravitational waves at the same time. Um because you can combine that information and learn very new things from it. Where did this light come from? I mean, you know, black holes are black holes. I wouldn't expect them to give off any light. But like neutron stars, why do they give off light? Well, so what happens in the collision is you've got these, you know, this material that, uh, you know, as the two combine, stuff kind of gets spurted out into space. Um, and then in that in that material, you start getting reactions going on where, you um, you know, these new heavy elements are being created, like gold, and in it, that material kind of glows, and you get light from that, and that they detected um, that lasted for, for days. Um, and you also get, right after um, the collision, you get a bright, uh, a burst of gamma rays, which is a high-energy light um, that's very short. Um, and happens just after uh, they detected the the collision and gravitational waves, um, and that uh, you know when when there's a collapse into a black hole, for example, you might have matter that kind of uh, accretes into the black hole and and creates this energetic. Uh, light. And we detected the, these gravitational waves and the spurt of light in 2017, but light and waves take time to travel. So this neutron star crash is actually old. When did this really happen? Yeah, so the galaxy that they uh, located this to is 130 million light years away. So that means it actually took 130 million years 
for the light and the gravitational waves to get here because both of those two signals travel at the speed of light. Um, so it really happened 130 million years ago, um, which is kind of a neat thought because, you know, we were, Earth was totally different 130 million years ago. And in the time that that light was traveling, you know, we had life evolving into something intelligent that could conceive of what a gravitational wave was and then detect it. Yeah, that is really neat. At, at 130 million years ago, that was the Cretaceous, mm-hmm. I think. Wow. <laughs> now, one of the cool things that you mentioned that this observation taught us was where precious metals like gold come from. So where do they come from? Like, how are these metals forming? Yeah, so um, there is, in this material that gets spurted out from the neutron star collision, um, there's, it's, it's, very, it's very dense in neutrons. Um, and that is something that you need for a process called the R process. Um, and so this process, what happens is, uh, so nuclei end up swallowing up more and more neutrons, and then they decay. Um, they have, they undergo beta decay. So basically, these elements are changing a neutron to a proton. So it's kind of like they're getting heavier, and then they're kind of climbing up the periodic table as they decay, and then they swallow up more neutrons, and they do this over and over again very quickly. Um, and this, you know, ends up giving you these heavy elements. Um, and we knew that this process happened. We knew that this was how the, these elements were formed, but we didn't know where that process happened until this detection. People were um, pretty sure that it was either in these neutron star collisions or in supernovas and in, in exploding stars, but there wasn't really any proof that it did happen with the neutron stars. Uh, we, ha- we didn't have any good observations of that. Uh, so now we do know that it happens in these neutron star collisions. Uh, it still might happen uh, in supernovas as well, but but we know for sure that you know some of the gold in your jewelry has come from these neutron stars merging. That's actually really interesting to think about. You know, we often think about people say, "Oh, we are star stuff," but mm-hmm. you know, it's not really. It doesn't really seem quite as. I don't know. It kind of hits you when you look down at like your your ring, and you're like, <laughs> "Hey." That was a star stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. As I was reporting this story, I had to stop myself every every few minutes and just kind of freak out about how cool that was that we've seen this thing that we'd never seen before. And now we know where, you know, where gold comes from. It's just amazing. And one of the other neat things that I thought was cool about the neutron star collision was that we knew the universe was expanding. We knew that. But we didn't know quite how fast it was going. And this neutron star crash gave us new information on that. So I was wondering how it did that and how fast are we going? Yeah. Uh, so the with this observation, um, we were able to, because we were able to detect gravitational waves and light, um, we could look at both those signals and combine them to see how, um, you know, how the universe was accelerating. So the gravitational waves... Uh, you can use the gravitational waves to tell you how far away the collision was um, by looking at the strength of the signal. And then, uh, because we know what galaxy it happened in, um, we can look at the light from that galaxy and look at how it's redshifted. So the the wavelength is stretched. Uh, The wavelength of the light is stretched by the expansion of the universe. And we can look at how much it was stretched. And since we know how far away it is, we know how how much the universe has expanded. Um, And... Uh, you also asked how fast we are going. So (laughs) if you look at two galaxies that are far apart from one another, they are separating at 
70 kilometers per second for each megaparsec of distance between them. And a megaparsec is about 3 million light years. Wow. So the further apart they are, the faster they are separating? Uh, yeah, it's like the whole space in between the two of, you know, the two is stretching. So if there's more space in between, then they expand more, they separate faster. That's mind blowing. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about this is that, um, there are a few different measurements of this expansion rate already, but they don't agree. Um, and that's kind of one of the big puzzles right now in, uh, cosmology is that we, you know, we, we can't quite pin down what this number is. Um, because if you look at, um, you know, if you try to make this measurement using light from very early in the universe, you get a different number than if you try to make this measurement using light from uh, far off supernovas. So this is now a third way of making this measurement. Um, and we hope it can eventually resolve this puzzle or, or you know, explain what's wrong with, with our current measurements. Well, Emily, thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me. We've linked to our article on the Neutron Star Smash-Up, as well as the study itself at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, co-host Rochelle Saunders is switching gears from the very large to the very small to talk with science writer Tina Say about editing genes in human embryos. Hello, Rochelle Saunders here. A few years ago, arguably the biggest news in biology and probably science in general was CRISPR, a discovery that blew the doors open for advances in gene editing and opened a potential Pandora's box of ethical questions. As a quick CRISPR in a nutshell primer for those who may be a bit rusty, a while back scientists noticed bacteria would swipe little bits of virus DNA and splice those stolen bits into their own DNA, storing them long term so that copies could be used later by RNA to more quickly recognize and attack virus DNA in the future. RNA carries a copy like a reference photo and starts to slice and dice anything it sees carrying the same sequence. Scientists have since figured out how to use this exact same mechanism to deliberately edit DNA. They use RNA to guide them to the right part of a DNA sequence, snip at exactly the right spot, and then insert their own sequence to repair the damage. This has made gene editing way faster, easier, more accurate, and significantly cheaper than it was before. The discovery of CRISPR was the beginning, and this year there have been some major advances and big firsts. Walking us through it is Tina Hessman Say, geneticist turned science writer from Science News. Your year end story is more specifically about scientists starting to edit human embryos with CRISPR. So, what kind of human editing have we done so far? So, in 2015, some scientists in China were the first to report that they had edited human embryos. Now, those embryos were not viable, they contained extra copies of chromosomes. So even if they were ever to be implanted in a woman's womb, they wouldn't develop into a baby. Um, so, but that sort of started off the the debate about whether or not you could ever use these as a medical intervention. Now, in adults, um, CRISPR has been used in human cells. Uh, there is a therapy you might have heard of for cancer that is called a CAR T cell. So this is when you take a particular type of immune system cell called a T cell and you engineer it using CRISPR so that it will go and attack cancer cells. Um, and there are a number of gene therapies that are being developed for um, specific diseases 
using CRISPR. Um, none of those, to my knowledge, have gotten into clinical trials yet. But um, so, so we've done some cells in a dish. We have some things that are being used in humans. Um, and then there's the whole embryo issue. So what happened before was editing these non-viable embryos and people saw that there were some problems with CRISPR. It was cutting in places where they didn't want it to cut. Um, and it was making mutations that they didn't want to happen. So the technology, even in the last couple of years, has progressed a lot. And people have reduced the number of these so-called off-target cutting events so that it's it really is going to where you want it to go and it's cutting where you want it to cut. So you mentioned uh, that the previous human editing on embryos had been done on non-viable embryos. Have we done work with viable embryos at all? So this year, several groups have reported doing work on viable embryos. There, uh, again, a group in China was the first to to show that they had done editing uh, to correct a mutation that's for a blood disorder called beta thalassemia, which is fairly common in Asia, I guess. Uh, another group at the University of Oregon with collaborators in um, Korea and China and a couple of other places they corrected a mutation in viable human embryos for um, a heart condition. Um, and a third group uh, also did a beta thalassemia with a, a slightly different CRISPR technique um, that we can get into. And, and then a group in England, they were actually the first to be approved like to have like some official uh, license to work on human embryos with CRISPR. Um, but what they did was induce a mutation in a particular gene in order to study its function in very early human development. It's sort of the way that the, the biologists are doing with mice and fish and fruit flies and things like that studying how genes work in those organisms. Um, this particular gene we know is really important for development, but it works slightly differently in each of the model organisms that we've used so far. And so people really wanted to find out what does it do in humans. And they did find some interesting differences between the way this gene works in humans and mice. So, some of this research has been done now on viable human embryos. Does that mean that these embryos are being implanted and that these babies are being um, brought to term? Or what happens to these embryos after the experiment has been done? So none of these embryos is being implanted. Uh, right now, the only thing that has been done is for research purposes only, just to see if the technique is safe to see if it's effective. So in these embryos, in order to see whether or not CRISPR has done the job that you want it to do, you would take apart the embryo and look at each cell individually 
to see where the cuts were made and whether it introduced mutations elsewhere in the genome that you don't want. So these embryos could never be put into a person and develop into a baby. That's been the big debate. Should we try and edit human embryos so that we could correct a genetic disease and then, you know, allow this to develop into a baby that would be essentially cured and you would be curing all of that person's descendants as well because the muta- you would have fixed the mutation that led to their genetic disease. Um, there's, I, I don't think anybody is advocating to keep genetic diseases, but, <laughs> but there is just this sort of existential thing about altering human genes and essentially altering human evolution. Um, the fear is not so much that oh, somebody's going to cure a genetic disease. The fear is that somebody is going to do something to make babies, you know, all super intelligent or all super athletic or, you know, create some genetic super race of people. Um, now, we don't really have any clue how to do such things, but there's that just deep-seated ickiness that kind of goes along with the idea of tinkering with human genes. I mean, we've we've seen this kind of thinking before with eugenics, and it doesn't turn out well for anybody. But on the other hand, oh, you know, we could do so many great things for so many people if we use this technology. So it's, it's, it's really a sticky question. It's one of those, it seems to be one of those kind of, and it's such a cliche term, but slippery slope questions, because I think most people can get on board with, it would be great to be able to have people who don't have to deal with these really, really awful lifelong diseases that just cause a lot of pain and suffering. I think, I think pretty much everyone can get on board with that. And most people can probably get on board with probably creating a super race is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's this weird middle ground that is so tricky because you get into questions like what about uh, genetic differences that maybe a lot of people perceive as a negative disability maybe something like uh, genetic deafness but that people who are deaf don't really consider it as always uh, something that needs to be edited away it's part of their identity and that's that's fine with them um, to maybe it would be okay if we were a little bit more physically resilient against a world that maybe is going to throw at us some pretty harsh stuff for climate change in the future. Maybe that's something we should think about doing if we can just to try and give the human race a leg up. It's, I feel like it's probably that middle gray area that really gets us into the kind of ethical quagmire. Yeah. But here's a thing that people don't really think about when they're talking about doing this type of engineering. You have to do IVF in order to do this. So in vitro fertilization, you would have to, uh, you know, harvest eggs and combine them with sperm in the lab because what this group in Oregon 
has shown is that the timing of when you do the editing is important. And you need to do it basically at the same time as the fertilization happens. Otherwise, not all of the cells that result are going to be edited. And then you would have um, what people call chimeric or basically mosaic uh, bodies. So some of your cells would still have the disease mutation and some wouldn't. And for some conditions, maybe that wouldn't matter so much. But for others, you would still be just as bad off. Um, so this would mean no accidental babies could ever be born again. Like No sex, no creating. Well, I mean, I suppose you could have sex, but there would be no creating babies that way. If, if you commit to doing this, if everybody would basically need to have this done, then nobody would ever be born without some sort of um, laboratory intervention. That definitely starts to sound like a creepy sci-fi novel really fast. (laughs) Well, it's it's funny because this is just exactly the sort of thing that the movie Gattaca explored. Uh, And that movie premiered 20 years ago. And and basically, there, there's a line in there where uh, Jude Law's character is giving a, a voiceover, and you see his parents going to visit their local geneticist. They had him the natural way, but for their next child, they decided to do the genetic engineering way, which had become the quote-unquote natural way of giving birth. We have linked to Tina's article recapping CRISPR advances from this year and also a slew of CRISPR-related articles from the Science News Archives so you can dig deep into the details. After the break, we throw things back to Bethany, who will take us all the way to Antarctica for our next story. Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Hi everyone, Bethany here again. And it wouldn't be the 21st century without a little talk about crumbling polar ice caps. In July, an iceberg the size of Delaware, that's 1,981 square miles, or about the quarter of the size of Wales in the United Kingdom, if you've got no idea how big Delaware is, dropped off the Larsen Sea ice shelf in Antarctica. That's one Titanic iceberg. Get it, Titanic? Too soon? But... That iceberg may not actually have much to do with climate change. Instead, the giant polar slice is a scientific opportunity. Here to tell us about it is Carolyn Gramling, the Earth Science Writer at Science News Magazine. Hi, Carolyn. Hi. Um, Now, let's start by getting ourselves kind of geographically located. Where is the Larsen Sea Ice Shelf exactly? Okay, so the Larsen Sea Ice Shelf is actually one of about, I don't know, seven ice shelves or so. They're all fringing the Antarctic Peninsula, um, so basically at the edge of the Weddell Sea. Um, and there, it's Larsen C is about, you know, it's the third one down. <laughs> um, a is at the very tip of the peninsula. Then you get B, of which a large chunk broke off in 2002. Then you have C, um, which is one of the largest ones and still. <laughs> and then D and then E, F, and G, which are much smaller. 
Is it just that they were named in order? Will we ever get to Larson Z, or are there only G? No, I think that I think they've you know parceled out the areas <laughs> already, so there's nothing left. Now, the iceberg that broke off was almost 2,000 square miles, but how big is the Larson Sea ice shelf itself? Well, so um, I was looking this up. If we're going to do a usual state comparison, which is what we all seem to like to do, then I guess you could say it was the size of Ohio. And so then, you know, a piece the size of Delaware broke off, which ultimately was about a tenth of its total area. And how big is the iceberg that broke off? I mean, we know how big it is, but is it relatively extra big? Is it a normal size chunk? So people, you know, people have been tracking like, you know, how how big are the bergs that have broken off over the years? Um, There is actually a Wikipedia page devoted to this, if if anyone wants to look it up. But the the Larson Seaberg, which now once it broke off, it got a new name. It's now called A68. And that berg is probably about the third largest recorded, you know, that we know of that has broken off um, uh, Antarctica. Wow. I'm also super upset that nobody thought to name it Iceberg McIceberg Face. <laughs> right. I'm sure that came up. So it's probably really hard to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, ice shelves have breaks all the time. They produce icebergs. We call that calving. Why were reporters especially excited about this? Well, I think that what was really different this time is that we could actually see it. Um, you know, in the past, the last time that a big berg broke off was around 2002. Um, and we just didn't have the satellite capability at that time that we have now. And so now we have these satellites that are passing over this region every few days, and they can take all these pictures, and we can sort of watch it happening in real time, which is not something we've ever been able to do before. So the story is really great from a you know reporting perspective. You know, you see the rift growing, and you see it forking, and then it breaks off. And, you know, we can tell that story in kind of real time. So I think that's a lot of the excitement was that we were actually we had this ringside seat. And how long did this break take? I know people kind of we we all expected it. We knew it was going to happen. How long did the whole chunk take to break off? Well, people first noticed a rift, um, I guess, as far back as uh, two or three years ago. And, you know, they've been sort of the scientists had noticed it and they were watching it grow, sort of keeping track of it as best they could. It wasn't until I would say maybe this summer, well, before, let's say a year ago, (laughs) that people started really being like, okay, this thing is really growing. At some point, it's going to close itself off, and then you will have a new iceberg. Um, And then, you know, it felt like, you know, Larson Sea fever really started to get going in the spring of this year, um, when it was like, at some point, very soon, this thing is going to break, and everyone was just waiting on tenterhooks for it to happen. And then it finally did in July. And ice caps melting is kind of a climate change poster child. Does this event have anything to do with climate change? Right. Well, that is a really complicated question. And um, I'd say the annoying answer is that we don't know. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, they calve all the time. And it's part of their natural process. The shelf grows out into the ocean. It extends a little bit too far. And then bits break off. Um, And, of course, right now, you know, we're all on high alert for signals of climate change. So we're, we're looking for that. And this was a really dramatic event. But the truth is, we just don't know if we can actually link this one particular event to climate change. And a lot of scientists are saying, you know, maybe not, maybe not. But that doesn't mean that, you know, climate change isn't still going to be devastating to the region. It's just we don't know about this one event. So it's like every time a big hurricane hits and they're like, oh, this, hur- this hurricane right. is the result of climate change. Well, weather isn't climate. Right. Yes, it's pretty much the same analogy. (laughs) And an iceberg is not a melting polar ice cap. Right, right. 
But scientists are still very excited. Why are they so excited? Well, again, I mean, I think part of it is that they they also got a ringside seat, which is exciting for them. You know, they got to watch this through these satellite images for the for the first time happening. Um, but also because, you know, for scientists, you know, any kind of event like this is also an opportunity. And they are really excited to go and study the aftermath. And that's the thing that they haven't gotten to do before either. And so this time they they really put together a lot of quick responses to get down there as quickly as possible and figure out, you know, what's happening on the ice shelf, what, what happened beneath the ice shelf. You know, there's a lot of questions that they can immediately go jump into action and try to answer. Scientists also want to study seafloor topography, like the actual, you know, bumps and valleys and stuff on the seafloor that were uh, that were under this ice shelf. Why do they want to look at that? Well, that actually is, I mean, a lot of it is just that you know, we don't, we don't know what's down there because it's been hidden for so long. I mean, that's, that's part of the mystery of all this is, you know, these, these worlds that were underneath these ice shelves, um, were inaccessible. Um, and, you know, now we do have, um, ROVs and other kinds of things that can, that can go underneath, but it's still a pretty difficult area to study. And so now with the ice removed, it, it certainly makes it easier to, to do those kinds of studies. Yeah. And one thing that I'm especially excited about is that the giant ice shelf breaking off means there's an entire new ecosystem forming. Mm -hmm. What do we know so far about what life is like underneath hundreds of feet of floating ice? Well, yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, so that we know that there was, you know, very likely an ecosystem that was living under that ice shelf, although it's possible that nothing could live there because, you know, there was no light, um, no, which means no microalgae in the water, which are, you know, the basis for the food web in, you know, all sunlit parts of the ocean. Um, and so there's very little food available. And so scientists think it might have been, it might be analogous to the deep sea areas where there's no light and you have, you know, maybe chemosynthetic bacteria being the basis of the food web, but you also have these species like weird things like carnivorous sponges that, you know, snatch what food they can from the water column. You know, it's a very, it's a very strange hard scrabble life down there. Um, so that might be, you know, what they find um, under this ice shelf. Um, they just, they just really don't know. I really want someone to make a horror movie about giant carnivorous sponges. <laughs> they are pretty freaky looking. That would be the greatest horror movie ever. <laughs> well, Carolyn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about the iceberg. It was my pleasure. We've linked to articles about the Larsen Sea break at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we're headed back to outer space. Rochelle will be speaking with science news writer Lisa Grossman about a whole new slew of planets in the Trappist system, none of which, sadly, will probably be named Planet McPlanetface. Stay tuned. It's Rochelle Saunders picking up with the next of our big five science stories from 2017. This one's all about an ultra-cool dwarf star and its seven Earth-sized planets. Here to walk us through it is Lisa Grossman, an astronomy writer from Science News. Lisa, welcome back to Science for the People. Hi, it's nice to be here. So there has been some interesting conversation in the astronomy community this year about a family of planets orbiting the TRAPPIST-1 star. So first, can you give us some background on TRAPPIST-1 and the planets we've discovered there? Sure. So the TRAPPIST observatory is a pair of telescopes. Um, one's in Chile and one's in Morocco, and they're relatively small telescopes. And what they do is they watch stars, um, most of them small, smaller than the sun, um, for planets that cross in front of them. And when the planets do that, they dim the light from the star a little bit. So the telescopes can pick up the fact that there is a planet there by seeing the, they call it a light curve, the um, the dips and the, the dimmings and then brightenings of the star. 
So TRAPPIST-1 is the first star that was found to have a planet in this uh, survey from this tiny telescope. And it, at first they thought that it had three planets that were all around the size of Earth, which is pretty exciting all on its own because we think that lots of planets have, uh, sorry, lots of stars have planets. Um, but because of the way that we look, it's easier to see bigger planets than smaller ones. So we've found a lot more Jupiter-sized planets than we have found Earth-sized planets. And then when they watched this, uh, this one star, TRAPPIST-1, a little bit more, they found that it actually has seven planets that are all roughly the size of Earth. And three of them are in what's called the habitable zone, which is the region around the star where temperatures are good for liquid water to exist on the surface. And they did some modeling also, and I think three out of the seven could have water if their atmospheres have certain properties. So that's a lot of planets that could have water. And where we think everywhere on Earth where there's water, there's life. So this is exciting for people who want to find aliens, basically, who want to find uh, life outside of the solar system. This is a good system to check. So is what makes this system particularly unique and interesting is the how many planets we found, or is it more that we found so many Earth-sized planets? Right. It's it's that there there are so many Earth-sized planets that could have water. Oh, so we've, okay. We've found um, we found systems where there are six or so planets that are all too hot, um, and we found Earth-sized planets in habitable zones that are further away, but they're the only ones. So this is the first where all these things come together at once. So there's been some interesting conversation about what makes a planet habitable that has kind of come out of the system's discovery. So can you talk a little bit about the kinds of conversations that are happening about what makes a planet habitable when we're doing these searches? Yeah, this stuff is really interesting. And we're getting more detailed in that kind of question all the time, the more planets we find. Um, originally, the, the idea was just that we were looking for like this Goldilocks zone where it's not too hot, not too cold. But in our solar system, there are three planets that could be considered in the habitable zone, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Only one of them has life that we know of. Um, the other two might have maybe had life at some of some kind at some point, but we don't know. And definitely not, you know, astronomers who can say hello. Um, so if we find planets around other stars that are in this, this, you know, Goldilocks zone, does that mean that they are inhabited? We have no, uh, we're developing ways to tell, but we have no good way to tell right now. And there are other aspects of the star and of the planet-star planet interactions that could make it better or worse um, for anything that might try to get a, a life going there. So the thing that is um, possibly uncomfortable about stars like Trappist, uh, the, I said earlier that the star is smaller than the sun. Those kinds of stars tend to live a really long time, which is good because it means that their planets have a long time to um, have evolution go or just, just to have like prebiotic stuff turn into biotic stuff. Um, but they also tend to be very flary. They have, um, our, our star, the sun gives off big burps of, uh, of plasma and hot material every so often. And sometimes they hit the earth and, and the earth, um, that's what causes like auroras in the atmosphere. Um, usually they don't harm anything down here, but if we didn't have the magnetic field that we have, if we didn't have the atmosphere that we have, it would be bad. It would be, um, just like a, a big sunburn for the whole planet. So, Stars like Trappist are a lot more violent in that way. They give off a lot more flares. They're a lot more powerful. So there's been a debate for a while now about whether these planets are actually good places for life or if they would lose their atmospheres really early, if all that all that violence from their star would just strip their atmospheres away and then there would be no water left, um, or if they would get fried repeatedly, even if they did manage to hold on to their atmospheres. 
So, so it's tricky. It's not a simple matter of like, what's its temperature? You know, where, where is its orbit with respect to the star? There's a lot of other details that go into it. And this is even before the just dice roll chance potentially that, that life needs in order to get a kickstart. Cause we're not even a hundred percent sure how life started on our planet. We have some pretty strong guesses, but I don't think right. anybody knows for sure. Right. Um, but one of the other things that's cool about the Trappist system is that, um, in our solar system, it's been suggested that life could have started on another planet and then came to Earth on a comet or a, on a meteorite, um, and that planets can kind of toss their rocks back and forth and spread life that way. So for Trappist, having so many planets packed so close together, um, they're, they're actually really, because the star is so small, the habitable zone is also really close in. Um, cause the star is dimmer than the sun too. So it's cooler. Um, so the stars, the planets that orbit in the habitable zone, their, their whole year is six, nine, and 12 Earth days. These planets, um, are very close to each other and their years are also integer multiples of each other. So when one of them goes around once, the other goes around twice. So they link up, like they are on the same side of the star and they're close to each other very frequently and their years are six, nine, and 12 days long, Earth days. So the chances for them to toss rocks back and forth, if there's like a, um, an asteroid strike on one of them that kicks a bunch of rocks up into the atmosphere and they escape into space, they could land on one of the other planets. We know this happens in our solar system because we see asteroids that came from Mars, uh, not asteroids, we see meteors that came from Mars and we have found them in Antarctica. And we've seen meteorites from Earth on Mars as well. But the Trappist system could be doing this all the time. So if life got started on one of them, then it would have a better chance. Then there's, then there's a higher chance that life has gotten started on more than one of them as well. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of the idea that because they are, like you say, so tightly packed, there is a higher chance of them essentially sort of sharing pieces of themselves to jumpstart life in different ways. That's really cool. Yeah. And then, of course, if they do have technological civilizations, it would be easier for them to build a spaceship and go visit on purpose. That's true. They have an extra planet waiting for them, not that far away <laughs> compared to Earth. <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. Is Are we spending a lot of time looking around these kind of smaller, uh, I think it was described as an ultra-cool dwarf star, which is kind of a sweet name. Um <laughs> Are we spending more time looking at these kinds of stars for planets? It's, I feel like there was a time not that long ago when we heard a lot about all of the planets people were discovering. Um, and now because people discover so many planets, we hear about, I think, comparatively fewer of them now. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's fair to say. I think there was a while where every new planet was a news story and that is not the case anymore because we just have so many. Every new planet, we wouldn't keep up. I would be only writing about planets, which would be fine. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I would be writing the same story over and over, like they found another one. Here it is. So it, it, it takes a little bit more now for a planet or a group of planets to clear the bar to make a new story, which is also really exciting. Um, but we are still observing these stars a lot. Um, the smaller, cooler, the ultra-cool dwarfs, or also called red dwarfs, um, there might be a distinction between them. Some red dwarfs might be a little bit bigger and warmer than the ultra-cool dwarfs. 
but they are these these two together represent the biggest category of stars in the galaxy. So most of the stars in the galaxy are dwarf stars. So and also their uh, their habitable zones are closer to the stars because they're so small and dim. So that gives astronomers more chances to see a planet pass in front of the star, which makes them easier to discover. So we were looking a lot at these stars because the odds of finding planets around them is higher because of their numbers and because of their the ease of finding the planets in the first place. Um, there was a NASA telescope called the Kepler Space Telescope that was looking at stars that are more like the sun, and it found thousands of planets also. So we've we've been looking at both. There's going to be another telescope launching next year. The TESS telescope stands for a Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And that's a NASA telescope that's launching next year. And it's going to look at mostly nearby bright stars. And it will, it will find more, thousands more planets. Such a, such a cool thing that we're able to do now that, that finding other planets, especially other Earth-like planets or other potentially habitable planets is starting to become a little bit ordinary. That's kind of a, just something that's so cool to think about when you actually stop and think about it. Yeah, it's amazing. And one thing that the exoplanet astronomers always say when I talk to them about this is that now we're getting into the, the realm of exoplanet population studies. So we can talk about what planets are like in general and what kinds of conditions are necessary to make planets. So we now know how many stars in the galaxy probably have a planet, and it's most of them. Um, and we can start talking about how many stars have Earth-sized planets, how many stars have configurations like our solar system, um, how many stars have an Earth and a Jupiter. Turns out not that many. So that's weird. Um, so we can find out not just how, like what individual planets look like, but how normal our solar system is in the grand scheme of all the planet systems in the galaxy. That's really interesting and something that I hadn't thought of before, which is we're starting to get enough planets and systems out there where we can look at broad sets and kind of trends. That must be really exciting for people to be able to yeah. start to look at um, being able to draw some more general kind of family conclusions about how solar systems evolve over time. That's really cool. Exactly. Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, we will definitely send some people over to read more about this because it's really cool. All right, enjoy. We've linked to Lisa's articles on the Trappist system on Science News and a few others in their back catalog if you want all the play-by-play. -play. Now I throw the baton back over to Bethany to play us out with the last of our best of list for this year. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and we're covering five of the most important scientific findings in 2017. And last but not least, it's time to talk about football, not European football, which Americans know as soccer. No, we're talking about American football, the beloved sport that is highly technical, surprisingly graceful, and requires huge amounts of skill and training. But in the end, it's also a sport that involves one group of gigantic guys trying to get through another group of very large men. And that means football players get hit on the head. A lot. Over the past few years, there has been something of a rising drumbeat of concern over these head hits. Scientists and doctors started to become aware that concussions were serious business with major long-term implications. But there wasn't a lot of hard evidence of just how much football player brains were at risk. This year, that changed a bit with a new large study of former football players. Here to walk us through the findings is Laura Sanders, who covers the neuroscience beat at Science News. Hi, Laura. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Now let's start with something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. What is that? Yeah, so that's the name that researchers have given to this disease that they think is caused by hits on the head. And so it's similar to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in that it's also considered a neurodegenerative disease. Um, it's progressive. It's, um, it's, there's no stopping it once it starts. Um, and so they've been linking in recent years this disease, CTE is the abbreviation, um, to athletes. So definitely football players, but also things like hockey and rugby and even soccer, American soccer, um, and even military veterans and domestic violence, um, have all kind of been linked into this. So they think anything that has kind of repetitive head trauma might be involved. And you mentioned that it's kind of related or like Alzheimer's, it's neurodegenerative. What kind of symptoms are related to that? Yeah, so it's things like memory loss, uh, thinking problems, confusion. Um, there have been a lot of accounts of impaired judgment and kind of impulse control problems. And then also it's been linked to more serious things like depression and suicide. Um, it's, it's, you know, kind of similar in a lot of ways to Alzheimer's or other dementias that hit people with, with older age. And this may be kind of obvious, but you mentioned that it's specific to several sports, including things like, say, soccer and, um, football and hockey, possibly also things like rugby, I have to imagine. But mm -hmm. why look in football players specifically for this? Well, it, it's, Football is pretty heavy on the head hitting. <laughs> it, there's a lot of damage that happens. Um, and there are also a lot of implications for kids. You know, kids start playing football here in the U.S. early. And there's a lot of questions about what that does to the developing brain. Um, and also, I should mention boxing. So this disease was actually first described in the 1920s, and people referred to it as punch drunk syndrome. Um, or later, it was kind of reclassified as dementia pugilistica. Um, so it's it's something that people have known for quite a while, that if you're getting hit on the head a lot, you you might suffer. I, I just really love the phrase. I mean, it's terrible, but the phrase dementia pugilistica is mm -hmm. amazing. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Now, this most recent study came out in July 2017 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. What was it looking for? So the, the big question they were trying to answer is, what's the relationship between head trauma and, you know, this altered behavior, things like memory loss and, and cognitive problems, how does that relate to what the brain actually looks like? So they're trying to, in, in a pretty big sample, they're trying to tie um, brain pathology to these other things, like the behavioral problems. And they had a whole bunch of brains. How many brains did the study have and where did they get them? Yeah, so it was, it's the biggest study so far of this. Um, they had 202, which doesn't sound like a ton, but it actually is for, you know, human brain samples. That's a pretty big number. Um, and they had, it's, it's part of Boston University's brain bank. And so they, these brains came from either players themselves who had decided, you know, before they died that they would like to donate or their next of kin or legal representative authorized the donation from, from the, um, the sample to the researchers at BU. And were all of them football players or did, were some, 
you know, people with less or more football experience? What was the sample like? Yeah, so the brain bank as a whole has a, a very a variety of people who've who've been hit on the head repeatedly. This study just focused on football players. Um, and they got a really nice spread from professional football players all the way down to pre high school players. Um, the vast majority of the people in this study, so of the 202, 111 were NFL players. And eight were Canadian Football League players. Um, and then smaller numbers were, were kind of more, uh, like semi pro. I think were 14 and 53 of the samples were college players, 14 were high school players, and then two pre high schools. So they got a really nice range of like very experienced football players all the way down to pre high school. And one of the things that made this study kind of hit the news in a very splashy way was the fact that the results were very shocking. What did the study find? It was, it's extremely shocking um, to us. I think the researcher, well, the researchers do disagree that it's shocking because they expected it. Of the 111 NFL players, 110 had signs of CTE in their brain. So 99%, that's, that's a pretty, pretty big number. Um, And then they go down from there. So in the Canadian Football League, 88% of them had signs of CTE. The semi-pros had 64%. College football players had 91%, um, which I think also shocked a lot of people, you know, this idea that it's not just for NFL players, but, you know, people who play in college or even the high school numbers um, were 21% of the high school samples had CTE. So it seems to be lesser there. And and the numbers, I mean, 99% mm-hmm. is, yeah. is just terrifying, but it's also important to know that the study has limitations. We can't just say, oh, 99% of American football players are going to end up with, you know, tau-coated brains. What are some of the caveats that we need to keep in mind? Exactly. So yeah, this is, I mean, the huge caveat, as you say, this is a very selective group of people. These are folks who either themselves chose to donate their brains because they suspected maybe something was going on or their family did. And so there's, it's, it's definitely not a representative group of NFL players. Um, so you can't say from this study how prevalent the idea, the disease is among the people who are playing football. Um, another caveat is it's not randomized. So you're not looking at people who started out the same and then one group got a bunch of head hits and the other group didn't. Um, here you're looking at, you know, folks who, have already played football. And then later you're looking at the results and trying to go back and link the two, you know, the head hits to the the CTE in their brains is, it's a little tricky. You know, I would argue that the link between these football players, head trauma and their brains are, it's a strong link. It seems, it seems quite strong to me, but there is the possibility that other factors could explain both of them. So, you know, maybe there's something about these folks who drove them to play football and also drove this brain change. Um, and I would say that's quite unlikely, but but we just don't know. And this is, you know, obviously really potentially important for, you know, people to know if they start playing football. But the mm-hmm. problem with chronic traumatic encephalopathy is that it needs to be diagnosed by looking at someone's brain, which means the person needs to have their brain removed, which means those people are dead. Yeah. But scientists are looking for signs of CTE in living people, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, it's a huge question. There are a lot of folks 
really trying hard to find some marker of the disease earlier so you can see, hey, something's going on, um, take it easy. Or, you know, how do we, how do you study the disease if you can only look at it at one time point? Um, there were really exciting results just earlier in November. There was a case um, described in the journal Neurosurgery of a brain scan that, that used a molecule that can uh, bind to and stick to the tau and also other kinds of fibrils called amyloid fibrils in the brain. And so they um, had followed these football players and done these brain scans while they were alive. And then the, one of the, the participants passed away. So they were able to look post-mortem and find similar signs of CTE in the, in the post-mortem brain as they did in the brain scan. Um, so people are really excited about that prospect. There are also other uh, research avenues looking at proteins that might be circulating in the blood. Um, there was a study earlier on microRNA molecules, which are tiny little regulatory um, molecules of RNA in spit and looking at how those correlated with concussions. So yeah, there's it's kind of a, it's a pretty wide net at this point, you know, figuring out what physical marker might do it in the living person. But I think I think people are going to get there. Um, there's just a huge amount of interest. You talked a little bit about how there's also been a sense of skepticism among football fans. No one really yeah. wants to know that your favorite <laughs> sport is bad for people. Do you think this study is going to have an effect on football? You know... That's a tough one. <laughs> I, in some ways, this this line of research already has. So there's a much bigger awareness of concussions. Um, there, are, you know, NFL now has concussion protocols, and there are some rule changes to kind of minimize the the possibility of these massive head crunching hits. Um, but I don't know. I mean, at the at the end of the day, football is still a sport where people have to crash into each other and. It's. It would be great if we could do that in a much safer way. Um, but so I think it'll be up to kind of technological advances in helmet safety and medical care, and you know, kind of tweaking around the edges of making it as safe as it possibly can. But I'm. I'm not sure that the game itself will fundamentally change. Well, Laura, thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thanks for having me. We've linked to our article on chronic traumatic encephalopathy in football players, as well as the study itself at scienceforthepeople.ca. If you think our top five list was right on or terribly, terribly off, let us know. You can reach us on Twitter and Facebook, or you can leave us a great or terrible review on iTunes. And if the holiday spirit strikes you, you can support us on our Patreon to help our hardworking crew of science nerds bring conversations to your ears every single week. If that's not in the cards, that's fine, too. Tell your friends about us and share the science love. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network. 
a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>